0: Some of you remember 1980 when a movie came out where there was a young playwright in the movie that finished a play, and then this elderly lady walked up to him and handed him a pocket watch or something. You remember this? And she said, come back to me. You remember that? Michigan people should know this movie. And then Christopher Reeve, who was at the height of his handsome, drove a car to Mackinac Island, which I guess you can do if you're Superman, (laughs) drove a car to Mackinac Island and he saw a picture of a beautiful young woman and he went back in time to meet her. I watched that movie in 1980 and now my wife says I have a crush on what's her name that was in that movie. (laughs) I've had to live with that for 40 years. It's not true. If you could travel back in time, would it be to see Jane Seymour? I mean, really? If you could travel back in time, where would you go? I know what you're thinking, I did not come to church for this. I came for the chili today. If you could travel back in time, where would you go? I asked Lois this. It was sort of sweet. She said, I think I'd go back to Kentucky and I would be a little girl again. And I I said, I think I would want to go with you. It's not how it works, though. So if you could travel into the future, where would you go? Oh now that's interesting because today that's what we're going to do in our text of of the bible that we're going to see in joel 3. we're going to travel into the future and we're going to see an amazing time in the future but before we do that let's talk about this over and over again in the text of joel and the three chapters that we have in our english bible the key thing is the day of the lord it keeps saying that the day of the lord the day of the lord And, and a real bible scholar would say well what is the day of the lord and the day of the Lord is probably not one particular day, it's probably a p- period of time when it's connected with the time of Jesus' return and the unfolding of the events of the end time when the consummation, consummation of the age takes place. And Joel refers to the day of the Lord, he refers to it symbolically. First there's this swarm of locusts that come like an army in Joel chapter 1, and then there's a swarm, the swarming army that comes like locusts, or there's a thread of that in Joel chapter 2, and the swarm of locusts is called the day of the Lord symbolically, and the swarming army that's threatened is the the day of the Lord partially, but then in chapter 3, there is, we're going to see the return of Christ and the judgments that come after that, and that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment and the complete fulfillment of the prophecy of the day of the Lord. We're talking about the day of the Lord today, and that's pretty interesting. Have you heard this phrase you ever heard somebody say you don't want to be on the wrong side of history it'd be easy to be on the wrong side of history you do things and now we look we do things back in the day and then and then now we've got sensibilities we didn't have then and we look back on what we did and we think oh wow i was on the wrong side of history it'd be easy to get on the wrong side of history but it might not be eternally tragic like getting on the wrong side of prophecy what if you got on the wrong side of the future? Let's say, what if someday you find out that you you really did you really did muff it, if you will, and you didn't live in a way appropriate to what's going to happen eternally? And see, this is why passages like this are in the Bible. Let's take our Bibles, look in Joel chapter three, and I'm going to read through Joel chapter three, verses one through twenty-one. The rest of the chapter, and it is a description that God gives to Joel to give to the people about the day of the Lord. First, God speaks threateningly about the mistreatment of his people. You see this in verses 1 through 3. God is going to speak with a threatening voice about the mistreatment of his people. He doesn't like people to be mistreated, especially his people Israel. Notice it. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... I will gather all the nations, and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine to drink it was an ugly abuse of the people of God and as it's been throughout history God's people have been abused around the world and prophetically God puts a prophecy in the mouth of Joel that says there's gonna come a time when God's people are gonna be restored that God's people are gonna be regathered and God speaks through Joel threateningly about the mistreatment of his people and that should be understood quite Literally about the people of God, the Jews, and it should be understood about God's, God's people who are grafted in, the Gentiles who know the Lord too. When God speaks, he speaks threateningly about the mistreatment of his people. And he says he's going to draw them into the, into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is probably to be understood more in terms of Jehoshaphat symbolically there than there will be a literal place where this happens, but the description there is probably poetic. This is the valley of God's vindication, his, his, the valley of God's judgment, the place where God is going to judge. There's going to be a judgment day for those who mistreat the people of God. Then he, so he speaks threateningly there. Then he speaks thunderously to the enemies of his people. And this is in verses 4 through 16. And he, and he speaks with sarcasm, with, 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 with uh, righteous indignation and anger. Verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you, are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head. Swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver, my gold, and have carried my treasures into your temples. And you have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. But I will stir them up from the place where you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head, and I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabians and to the nation away. For the Lord has spoken, proclaim... This among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am a warrior, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there, bring down your warriors, O Lord, let the nations stir themselves up, come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations put in the sickle. The harvest is ripe. Go in, tread the wine, press is full. The vats overflow. Their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision or the valley where I am going to render decision or verdict against them. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. It's kind of ominous language here what's this about when will this happen does this concern me why is this in our Bibles some good questions a large part of our Bibles are occupied with this kind of language we we don't put them on our greeting cards these passages but God wants us to think about them God wants us to us to viscerally feel them It's good for people to know that God is a God of absolute justice. So he speaks thunderously to his enemies. He roars, if you will, he says so. He's saying in verses 4 and following, you you won't pay me back, I will pay you back. He says in verses 6 and following, you won't sell my people, my people will sell you. He says in verses 12 through 16, you're going to come against me? I will judge you. We, we ran a hotel, Christian ministry, that met in a hotel, and it had a bunch of young men in it. And one day we heard somebody had come into the building, a stranger, maybe a danger to the others Had come into the building. And so somebody got in the intercom and said, hey, guys, you know, get what you can and come to the lobby. It was a really bad idea. So I was standing in the lobby when all the men came down with an implement of war. Like one guy had a golf club. Seriously, I don't know where he got it, but one of these college shoes had like one of those plastic bam-bam bats. And we stood there looking at each other. Woody Shoemaker was like a Navy SEAL guy, and he was standing next to me, and we were looking at these boys thinking, this is like a pile of testosterone waiting to happen right here, with, with golf clubs and chair legs and bam-bam bats and squirt guns. Woody wasn't smiling. I look over, he shows me his Glock in his pocket. I'm like this is getting real right now in prophetic literature often the prophets would say that what's going to happen in the future is we're going to beat our implements of warfare into implements of peace and agriculture and in a twist on a play on words and in a twist here God sarcastically says bring your bam bam bat let's see what you got you don't mess with God God's saying you you don't mess with my people you don't mess with me you don't threaten me there's going to be a judgment someday You can't avoid that and take the Bible seriously. And so then he speaks again, but now in verses 17 to 21, he's spoken threateningly to the people who have mistreated Israel. He's spoken thunderously to the enemies of his people and promised judgment. But in chapter 3, of course, in verses 17 to the end, he changes his tone and he speaks tenderly to his people. You see a full picture of the character of God, his justice and his mercy together here. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. See how he changed it? I am the Lord your God. Who's he speaking to now? His own people. I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, which is sweet to God's people, Zion. The ultimate place where God will come, dwell on earth, my holy mountain. I've been been close to there. I've been to the Holy Land. I've been to the Temple Mount. Had to leave my Bible to go up on the Temple Mount. The Muslims are in control. They have a big mosque up there on the Temple Mount. And they won't let you take your Christian Bible up there. Did you know that? <clears throat> kind of irked me a little bit. We are. Remember that, Lewis They stack your Bibles up. I'm like, what? The only place in the world I've ever had to relinquish my Bible. Hey, you know what? Someday that's going to be Jesus' Holy Mount. Amen? Anybody on the right side here? I mean, it's not a pep rally. I know you're waiting for chili, but you should be excited about that part right there. One day, he says, we will, I will dwell, we will dwell, you will know, they will know, the world will know that I am the Lord, your God, and we will dwell in Zion on my holy mountain, and Jerusalem will be holier, set aside for me. This, we're, we're going to prove it, but this is literally, this is a prediction of a literal thing that's going to happen in the future as a comfort of God's people. And the strangers shall never pass through it again. In other words, there will ne- never be, you know, the Gentile hostilities that pass through the land now. In the scriptures right here, it says, you know, you'll divide my land. If you go to the Holy Land, that's, that's the feeling you get. It's, it's oh, okay, here's our, here are the Jewish people, here are the Palestinians. There's a tremendous tension there. There's a division there. And this land that belongs to God's people. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And the hills will flow with milk. And the stream beds of Judah will flow with water. And the fountain will come forth. And the house of the Lord will water the valley of Shittim. And Egypt shall become a desolation. Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah. Because they've shed innocent blood in their land. he's speaking to his people saying, I'm going to take care of your enemies. Thoroughly, finally. But Judah will be inhabited forever. In Jerusalem, for all generations, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. I will avenge their blood. This is how he ends this in this phrase. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Look at verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion. Verse 17. The Lord dwells in Zion. Verse 21. The Lord dwells in Zion. I'm going to come be with my people. That's a theme of the scriptures. So you see this is why this is here to make sure that if we were on the wrong side of history we won't be on the wrong side of prophecy you might be on the wrong side of history don't be on the wrong side of the future this is what this is why we have a passage like this now how do we know this will be future how do we know this isn't a reference to something that happened in the past. doesn't really concern us. Well, we know for sure it's future just by backing up and reading the context at the end of chapter 2. You tell me if you really believe this happened. There there might be a stray preterist among us who thinks this happened in the past. I respect you. I just don't agree with you. Did this happen in the fall of Jerusalem? Let me read it to you. This is chapter 2 verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth blood and fire and columns of smoke and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great awesome day of the Lord comes and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be those who escape the Lord has said and among the survivors will be those upon whom the Lord has called for behold in that day and those times do you see this is a future thing one of the reasons we know this is future is it says this is the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And Jesus refers to the day of the Lord as yet future in Matthew 24. And the apostles refer to the day of the Lord as future. Peter refers to the day of the Lord. He says, be holy when you think about the day of the Lord. Paul referred to the, to the day of the Lord. In, in uh, God promises to restore Israel. And God promises to judge the nations. And astute i believe that astute bibles of uh, students of bible prophecy see that there's a return of israel to the land in unbelief and there will be a return of israel to the land in belief in other words god will bring them back and make them a nation has he done that is israel a nation is that a miracle i, I think so i think so Read about it. Just Google that up this afternoon after you're done with your chili and before you take your nap. Just Google that and look at God's super sign Israel. Did you understand even lost people like Hitler believed what is going on with this nation? That they cannot be defeated. They, 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 they cannot be ultimately defeated. And they gather back. They lost their land. They lost their language. They came back. They have their land. the language. One day they're going to have their Messiah. By a miraculous series of acts of the living God, God's people are going to come back and believe to him. Romans chapter 11. This is, I believe, what Joel is talking about. And Joel predicts this and Jesus prophesies this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And Paul talks about it. I think we have the passage right here in Acts chapter 17. Look at this. He has, this is you understand, Paul's in Athens preaching to pagans and saying, he has fixed a day, God has fixed a day, in which he will judge the world or the nations in righteousness by a man, who is this man, who he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, that's Jesus. Who's the judge of the nations? Jesus, has that happened yet? No, it has not. And God, Jesus will return, will establish himself in Zion. He will judge the nations and every man. You can't cherry pick what you want to believe about the Bible. You can't take the little sentimental parts of the Bible that you like for your greeting cards. And we do like nice greeting cards. Don't misunderstand. I won't get on the bad side of the greeting card ladies at Bethel. That's not going to happen here. Not on my watch. But, you know, these aren't the passages that we put on those greeting cards. But they're the word. And they're good for us to see, to go, to, to travel, time travel forward into history and go, there the, the future, into prophecy, and say there will be a time when Jesus returns and he's going to judge the nations. There's going to be judgments. God is a God of perfect justice. If you, you want to study something really interesting in the, in the Bible, study the various judgments and resurrections that the Bible talks about. Try to untangle that a little bit. It'll take some work. But it's interesting when you look okay who's being judged here and what are they being judged for and what is the ultimate result of their judgment and what happens before and after that dude do, do a study of the Bible let me give you just a three of them to be thinking about one of them is the Bible talks about a judgment seat for believers a judgment seat of Christ where the where a believer's sins are never gonna be judged again because they're judged on Calvary but a believers works will be judged in order to decide what kind of rewards that they have and that's the judgment seat of Christ In 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, I think we have time to read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I like this passage. It talks to us about looking forward to a judgment where God's going to untangle things. Even for believers, this is how one should regard us as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. Wherefore, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be trustworthy. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or a human court. In fact, I, I don't even judge myself, but I'm not aware of anything against myself but I'm not thereby acquitted if the Lord judges me. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not really worried about you judging me because I'm judging myself. But I'm not even trusting my own judgment because God is going to judge me. And then it says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. See that? Who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And everyone will receive his commendation from the Lord. There's going to be a judgment seat of Christ. When is that going to happen? How is that going to work? Then the scriptures talk about the judgment of the nations. I believe that's what Joel is talking about here because it sounds so parallel to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and, the, and who is going to be judged, the nations, and, and what's the basis of the judgment, how they treated Israel, his people, and what will be the result of that judgment. You can read that. And then there is there, in, you know, in Revelation, you can read the great white throne, this ominous future judgments. So what I'm just saying is I'm just trying to whet your appetite for this. Study the various judgments of the Bible. Study the various resurrections of the Bible and know this. God is thorough, in his, thorough and perfect in his justice. He won't always judge everything immediately but he will ultimately judge everything and people that are wise don't get caught on the wrong side of prophecy and they don't and they don't lose their eternal vision that one day God is going to judge everything. Now this is so serious when the towers fell do you remember that lois called me on the phone i was having a staff meeting and she set a plane and ran into one of the towers and i had an idea of a little like private plane that was off course she says no no you got to understand something terrible has happened you need to she literally took a little tv from home and drove to the office and plugged it in and goes look at this i remember looking at that thing this isn't really happening this isn't real it's like a bad movie like a b-grade movie it's not real But it was real do you understand this is nothing compared to the day that jesus returns and he brings judgment to the earth it's real that is real the opinions of people who disagree with the bible don't matter as much as the king of the universe who's going to come and judge what's right and wrong you can watch the news and they're going to tell their lies every night but jesus is the truth and one day he's going to come and it'll be very real. The temptation for us, because we live on this side, is to say, well, my sin isn't that big of a deal. We, we, God doesn't really care about my sin. Oh, you know, that, that guy that looks at that girl at the water cooler at the office, and like, nobody really knows. God doesn't really care about that. Or that little, you know, that little fudging thing that you do with your money. God's too big to be concerned about that. He doesn't really care about that. You don't really, you know, the person who doesn't really, you know, kind of lives selfishly, doesn't really care about the people hurting around him. And he he's, says, God doesn't really care. Or the person is suffering and they say, God isn't fair. A little girl that gets married and she thinks her life is going to be like a, a happy movie. The movies begin when the wedding ends there. But then her dream wedding turns into a nightmare, and she's abused, and now she's single, and now she's poor. It'd be really easy to say, you aren't fair, God. You aren't fair. Or you had in mind that in your declining years, you'd walk the beach with your lover, but she can't think straight anymore. And it's tempting to say, yeah, God, I'm tempted to believe you're not being fair. These are temptations that we have when we we lose sight of God's judgment. God, you don't care. God, you're not fair. Maybe you're not even there. You you know what I'm talking about? You ever had a torpedo in the side of your faith? You you go through a circum. It can be it can be not that big of a deal. It can it can be something that you wouldn't think would throw you off. literally can be like the death of your pet that you've had for years. And it literally messes up your faith. It can be the death of a child or it can be just a terrible thing that you hear you never thought you would have to hear. I promise you, if you live long enough, your faith is gonna take a hit. Am I right? Your faith is gonna take a a hit. And you're gonna be tempted to say, God, I'm not sure you care. I'm not sure you're fair. Some of us might even say, I'm not even sure you're there. Now, this is why we have passages like this in the Bible that God says in in clear, uncertain terms, I am just, and I will bring every sin into judgment, and I will reward every good, ultimately and forever. This is something we can never lose sight of. Judgment. When we see the judgments of God we know that these lies are not true, that God doesn't care about our sin, or God isn't fair when people sin against us, or God isn't there at all. I heard a pastor say this, and I thought I'd pass this on to you, because it's a, it's a poetic way of saying this very same thing that might stick to your heart. God has a book, Revelation 20, where he records all human sin. Yours and mine and everybody else's. And in Psalm 56.8, the psalmist says that God has a bottle where he captures all human suffering. All human sin. All human suffering. God is taking note of it. This is what the Bible teaches. The God that's often created by moderns is like a toothless old man. Kind of losing his marbles. Kind of wants everybody to be happy. Kind of harmless and benign. The Jesus that's been created in our culture is kind of a chill hippie. That's kind of cool, whatever you want to do. The Holy Spirit that's been created in our culture is kind of a new age, smarmy, new age guru. Not the holy living God of the Bible. And that's why we need to read the passages of the Bible that talk about the judgment of God, the ultimate, this is the ultimate one the universe who created us to whom we will give answer one day somebody says well you know i don't i don't know if i like that well a, you know it doesn't really so much matter if we like it if it's true it's going to happen you can't just take parts that you like and just throw away parts you don't like another way to look at this is just to think for believers all of our troubles are temporary If Jesus is going to come back in the day of the Lord and make everything right, then for believers, we might have troubles, but they're temporary. The worst trouble is temporary. And for unbelievers, their greatest choice are temporary. For a believer, this life is as bad as it's ever going to be for you. For an unbeliever, this life is as good as it's ever going to get for you. And it all turns on Jesus coming back in the day of the Lord. He's going to make everything right. I know some of you, all of us, we struggle every day with dark temptations. Maybe even people don't know about them. And it would be good for us to root our confidence in the truth that there is going to be a judgment day. Jesus is coming back. He's going to render judgment. And, and, we, and everyone will answer to him. He has a book where he records all sin. He has a bottle where he captures all suffering. He has a plan where his beautiful love that he has for us and desire to show mercy and his perfect justice, where his love is demonstrated and his perfect justice are satisfied. He has a plan to demonstrate his love and satisfy his perfect justice. There was a plan in the heart and the mind of God where all of the wrath of God would be poured out fully and finally and completely, and all of his love would be demonstrated beautifully And what was that plan? It was in the mind of God before time began. It's a subject of our songs. It's a heartbeat of a believer. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that God gave his son Jesus. That he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for us would lament and repent because of our sin and there he would demonstrate his love and there he would even the bible says it was it's there that he pours out his wrath in 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 romans chapter 3 look what it says all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of god say that's me and we're justified by his grace as a gift did you get that all of us have sinned and we deserve the judgment of god we've fallen short of his glory but we're justified made right by god by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation big word warning this word means Jesus steps in and he absorbs the just wrath of God against us for those who believe and we receive the gift of justification You say, I know this. I know you know this, but you're going to be telling lots of people this, and so you want to get really good at talking about it. I know you know this, but your kids need to know this. I know you know it, but you need to be able to express it to your neighbor. I know you know this, but you understand there are people that you work with that they, they don't know this simple story that salvation is a gift from God given to guilty sinners, that they are racing towards God's judgment, but God's poured out his judgment on Jesus already on the cross, and if they lament and if they repent and they believe, they never have to face the judgment of God for their sin. We want to be really good at explaining that to people, Susan. You, you got to explain that to your mother in a, an elusive moment and she passed from death into life. Before, the wrath of God was on her, and now the mercy of God is on her. Glory to God. It's just that simple. Who are you going to tell that? You say, Pastor, you're preaching the gospel. I already know it. I know. I'm not preaching the gospel so you'll know it. I'm preaching the gospel so you'll tell it. And so you be good at telling it. And so you'll tell it to the right person at the right time. And God will move in and, and it will set some, some. of you didn't think. Troy Smith, he, he had a guy he worked with. And a guy who wasn't walking with the Lord, he was like kind of in like trouble for him. God had a chance to influence him to, to come to faith in Christ. The guy got saved. I don't even remember. I think his name's Dan. I don't know the guy. I never met him. He never heard me preach. He saw Troy's life. That's why we tell the gospel. Well, first of all, we love it. Better than chili for the soul. You know? We love it, but because we want to be really good at talking about it. Anyway, how beautiful is this? This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance has passed over our former sins. This was his plan. He has a book where he records all sin. He has a bottle where he recognizes all suffering. He has a plan where he pours out He he demonstrates his love and satisfies his justice in Christ. This is now. Let's go back to Acts chapter 17 and back up to verse 30. And I want you to notice in this passage, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who is appointed. But we have, do we have this in Acts verse 30 and 31? Do We have another slide that has verse 31 on it here. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now he's commanding all people everywhere to what? That means you change your mind. Like you're going to go on your own. You're going to trust yourself. You're going to not believe. No, no, you change your mind. You believe there is a judgment. Jesus is the judge. I'm racing towards judgment. I, I, I I run to the cross. I flee to the cross. I throw myself on the mercy of Jesus. I believe I'm born again. And then he says, I've, now it's the time that God has commanded everyone, all people. Who is that? That's you. Everywhere to repent. Is this what you've done? Are you like, I'm in. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. This man is the one who was raised from the dead, verse 31 says. This is pretty sweet, I, I think. You can trust him to judge and to reward. You can trust him with the people who have hurt you. I have some people that have hurt me. I get no delight in thinking, they're going to burn in hell someday. That's not how I think. I think, oh, wouldn't it be sweet if we could be friends again? Wouldn't it be sweet if we could both kneel at the cross, and we could all kneel at the cross. We could all know that we're right with God, and none of us deserved it, but we have it. And and wouldn't it be sweet to spend eternity in heaven with no misunderstandings, and no heartaches, and and no bitterness, and no ugliness again? That's just the Christian hope. And this is why we go, this is why we, we forgive people who hurt us, because we don't want them to have the judgment of God. We want them to have the mercy of God. We got the mercy of God. We want them to have the mercy of God. This is this is the the sweetness of understanding that God, we can trust God to judge, we can trust Him to reward. For years, I've heard this beautiful story about this missionary couple from Africa. I'm sure it's true, but there's a couple versions, so I think it has some apocryphal stuff in it. So let's just call this a parable. I'm going to tell you this story. Let's just call it a parable. Teddy Roosevelt, during his presidency, would go to Africa to hunt. He would take a ship. He would return on a ship. He returns to New York from a a long hunt on a ship from Africa to New York. When he arrives, there's an entourage to meet him. There's a band to play. There are people there. There's, There's loud revelry and band music and this missionary couple that had served in Africa for 40 years and their health was broken and their finances were gone, were coming home after 40 years of service in Africa. And they were down in the bowels of the ship, you know. And so the president gets off and there's there's this grand party to welcome him. But by the time the missionaries get off the ship, there's nobody left there. There's no band, just rubbish on the street. And they walk quietly along the street towards their hotel. And the missionary says to his wife, this is quite a homecoming, isn't it? She says, well, why don't you go to your room and get a nap? Talk to the Lord about it. Yeah. She says, I'll go to the dining room. You can join me later. All right. She's sitting in the dining room. About 30 minutes later, he walks in radiant with joy beaming sits down she says what, what what happened he said i took your advice she said what what did you do i talked to the lord about it i told him i said this is some kind of homecoming for a missionary of 40 years and he he put his arm around me and he said son you're not home yet you're not home yet so one day he'll bring us home And he'll bring home to us. That's what verse thirty twenty one says. I'll avenge their blood, blood I've not avenged, for the Lord dwells with you in Zion. He'll bring us home. He'll bring home to us. In the day of the Lord, every eye will see him. In the day of the Lord, every knee will bow. In the day of the Lord, every tongue will confess. Every tear will be made dry. In the day of the Lord, every heartache will be mended, every wrong will be made right, every injustice will be vindicated. In the day of the Lord, every hurt will be healed, every question will be answered, every enemy will be defeated, every temptation will be lifted, every rebellion will be crushed, every division will be reunited, every broken thing will be fully and finally and completely and eternally restored for all of those who lament and for all of those who repent.